You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Hello, my name is Josiah Timmons, and today I'll be reading Genesis 45, 16 to 46, 5. You can find that on page 27 in the Seatback Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one home with you from the seat back. Genesis 45, 16-46-5 When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land and you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver, and five changes of clothes. To this, to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they said to him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes 
Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Please pray with me. God, I please pray. I pray that you will bless Jeremy as he delivers your message and that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say today. Amen. Have you ever had a looming decision in front of you that feels like a really big deal because of all the consequences that will come from making that decision? You ever had a big decision in front of you and you're like, wow, this is a big decision I'm about to make and there are going to be lots of consequences if I say yes to this decision. You ever found yourself in that position? Have you ever wondered, hey God, what would you like me to do in this situation? And not had a simple chapter and verse that tells you exactly what you should do. I, mean, I don't know about you, but, but I remember in my early 20s, there were a bunch of these decisions should I continue on in the trajectory I have with my undergrad? Should I graduate? Is this the right major? Do I find a career in this field? Should I marry this wonderful gal? Where should I move? What job should I take? All of those are really big decisions. And it can be a little bit overwhelming when you're wanting to make those decisions in view of God. And I think, God, what do you want me to do in this? I mean, wouldn't it be great if God just came down and said, this is the right answer. <laughs> For anyone asking those types of questions, they are a big deal. And they have such big implications. And it turns out that those big questions, for those of you in that season, actually get followed by bigger questions the older you get. Like, okay, should we start a family? How many kids? Or should we move? Is this the right job? Should we go to a different job? What city should we live in? How should we raise kids? It, what school do we send our kids in? And then those get replaced by even bigger questions. And it feels like the stakes just keep going up. And, and it's normal for God's people, who I'm guessing that's most of you here, you, you would say, I want to love Jesus. I want to obey God. I want to do whatever he wants me to do. And so how do we make a big decision? How do we figure that out? Well, good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. I'm Pastor Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and, and I'm so glad you've joined us. This morning we come to a passage that is going to give us some principles for how we might think about making a big decision like we've just mentioned. Now, for our purposes today, we're not talking about those decisions that the Bible is really, really clear on. So if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I want to run off with the secretary. God, is that your will for me? I already know the answer to that. And if you don't know the answer to that, I'd be happy to talk to you after service because it's real clear in the scripture. I got a chapter and verse for you. 
Or if you're thinking to yourself, man, I'd really, like a, I'd really like to have my conscience eased with my addiction issues. And so, a pastor, can you help me know what would God want me to do with my addiction issues? I already know that one. So come talk to me. Be happy to give you these. What we're talking about today aren't these black and white issues, but more of these, more of these decisions that feel like a fork in the road. Man, I could go this way. I could go that way. And, and I want to honor God. Which way do I go, pastor? What does the Bible say? How do we discern God's will in these tricky and complicated decisions? That's what this sermon's about. That's where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Genesis 45, 16? I want to walk us through this text and show you some principles and considerations for how to discern God's will in difficult situations, difficult questions, difficult circumstances. Genesis 45, verse 16. Let's begin with this huge question. If you're taking notes, here's the question. How do we discern God's will? Look right there at verse 16. We just heard Josiah do a great job reading this. And we see that Pharaoh is now hearing about Joseph's brothers in Egypt. And then it leads Pharaoh, the king of the most powerful nation at this time, to say, and make a generous and hospitable offer. There in verses 17 and 18. Joseph, tell your brothers, everybody move to Egypt. Man, we would love to have you. And, and Pharaoh very generously saying, I'm going to give you the cream of the crop here. I'm going to give you the best. We see him offering some, some wagons to help with their move, which maybe has you thinking, well, I don't need a wagon if I'm moving. But it's the cultural equivalent of a fleet of moving trucks, okay? And, and then he says even, you can just leave your stuff. I'm going to give you a fully furnished place to live. Just, you know what, don't even pack it. Get on the wagons, get here, and I've got spaces for all y'all with the pantries full of the best snacks. You can imagine the little kids are thinking, in the middle of a famine, why that sounds real, real nice. Jacob, what are we going to do? Now in case you're new with us this morning and you're thinking where in the world are we in this story you got to keep in mind what has transpired so far it was many years ago when Joseph had been 17 he had been sold into slavery sold down to Egypt and in a rags to riches tale he he serves in Potiphar's house he ends up in prison but then he gets put as number two in all of Egypt and he's put there as Egypt walks through Seven really good years with great yields on their crops, followed by all of this famine. And so they're two years into a crushing famine. And because of Joseph's great leadership, Pharaoh's in a wonderful spot, which I think is part of why he's so generous. Like politically, Pharaoh's looking good. The, 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 the AP poll has Pharaoh trending in the right direction. Not only is he doing well politically, though, he's also doing great economically. The, Pharaoh is dominating the economic scene because of Joseph's great wisdom. So it makes sense that Pharaoh says, man, bring your family because he's not about to let Joseph leave, right? He needs all of them down here. And there's a famine and Egypt has food, thanks to Joseph. So tell your starving family they can live here. Just last chapter, we saw this reconciliation between Joseph. He's finally got to a place where he and his brothers are good. And so that's where we're at in the story. And the 11 boys then, as you see in the text, are traveling home. And look how much stuff they have with them. I mean, you may not be that impressed with donkeys full of the finest goods, but I'm promising you that in those days it was a wonderful delight to have all of these 
supplies. Now, in just a moment, the boys are going to share the good news that Joseph is alive. But at this point, as the boys are taken off, all of them have a set of clothes. Benjamin got the best share of that with five sets. But as they're leaving Egypt, they've got all of this stuff. A first consideration for our purposes in the sermon, how do we discern God's will, would be to consider this. Are material blessings enough to confirm God's will? Are material blessings enough to confirm God's will? Here's what I want you to do. Try to put yourself in Jacob's shoes. That's the character we're going to be considering from this section today. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. And as you hear this offer in the middle of a crushing famine, knowing that you're responsible for somewhere around 70 people, and you're trying to discern God's will, should we move to Egypt? Should we stay here? I could appreciate why Jacob may be thinking to himself, oh man, look at this incredible offer. Look at all the donkeys with all the stuff. God, what do you want me to do? And there's all of this wealth and opportunity and new homes and full pantries that are waiting for me in Egypt. How many of us, if we were put in that position, trying to discern God's will, might think to ourselves, I got to say yes to this once in a lifetime opportunity. Because look at how much I stand the gain. Well, not so fast. We got to keep in mind that as Jacob has in front of him all of this opportunity to cash in, so to speak, he has something else, and that is a clear command from God to stay in the promised land. You want to look it up later. It's Genesis 28, when Jacob was running away from Esau, that God actually said, Hey, Jacob, I know you're running away from Esau now, but I'm going to bring you back, and you are going to live in the promised land. It's not just then. Later on with his father-in-law Laban in Genesis 31, God tells Jacob, you are to live in the promised land. And so in the face of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, it's not like Jacob had no clue what God wanted for him. Sure, Jacob was certainly welcome to pray about God's will in moving, but the blessings themselves were not enough to confirm that Jacob had to go to Egypt. That's what I want you to see. All of the material wealth that Egypt could promise wasn't enough for Jacob to go, well, then it must be God's will because he'd want me to be wealthy, right? More broadly from the book of Genesis, I want you to consider another principle that ringing in my mind when I was thinking about this, not only is material wealth insufficient in and of itself to confirm God's will, but a famine wasn't enough either. A disaster wasn't enough to confirm God's will. And, and I wonder how many of us, if we were in Jacob's shoes, would think to ourselves, man, Egypt has all this to offer us. Egypt has grain. We can eat down there. And we're sitting here in the promised land. Well, for sure it's going to be God's will for us to move down there because they have food for us. Now, keep in mind, Abraham actually did that in Genesis 12. This isn't the first famine in Genesis. And in Genesis 12, Abraham went down there. And you might remember this great fiasco where his wife, he kept calling his sister. And the very seed of the offspring of promise was threatened because of Abraham not discerning God's will properly. Abraham not asking, God, what should I do? But had Jacob been there and thought, man, disaster, that seems like a good reason to move. Keep in mind also that it was Jacob's dad. Jacob's dad, Isaac, lived in Egypt for a season. Jacob could have even said something like this. Well, my dad and grandpa lived in Egypt for a while. They're kind of to be promised land people, so it's probably okay, right? That's enough, right? No, disaster. 
what your grandpa and dad did, isn't enough to confirm God's will either. Back to the text, verse 25. I want us to consider, are fulfilling deep desires enough to confirm God's will when we're trying to figure out what God wants for us? Verse 25, look there, please. It's the moment of truth for the boys. Here's where they finally make this announcement. I wish we had an instant replay of it. I don't know if in heaven they have that like big video booth where you can go back in time and kind of dial in and see what happened. I'm hoping they do. <laughs> this would be a sweet moment. But, but the news that Joseph is alive, a 22-year-old lie finally comes into the light. Notice Jacob's response. The news hits him like a bucket of ice water. <laughs> His heart goes numb. Verse 26. But soon enough, Jacob thaws out and, and he begins to believe this message from Joseph. My guess is Benjamin, who's sitting there, is probably validating what the ten brothers who are, have been scoundrels previously are saying. My guess is Benjamin goes, no, dad, it's real. And then, of course, Jacob looks around and he goes, well, what else explains why I've got all these wagons? Which, again, I get that's not a big deal to some of us that there'd be a bunch of wagons, but it's a big deal for them, right? And Jacob realizes my boys are not playing an awful trick on me. This is real. Joseph is alive. And, and this puts Jacob in a position to have a more than 20-year-old dream realized. Here's what I mean. Put yourself in his shoes again. Joseph was your favorite. And your heart has been broken for 20-plus years. Where's my Joseph? I wish it hadn't happened to him. And now all of a sudden, he's alive and you could move to live right next to him. You could live in the same cul-de-sac as Joseph. And I think for some of us, if we were in that position, we would think, oh my goodness. It's been on my bucket list to, to live next to my kids my whole life, and now I have an opportunity? Surely this is God's will for my life, yeah? Well, maybe it is. But it's not enough for Jacob to merely be able to fulfill some lifelong dream, to, to merely be able to put himself in a position that he is deeply desired to live in, that's not enough to convince him that's the will of God for my life. One more factor from the text that isn't enough to confirm Jacob's decision to move from the promised land. Write this down if you are taking notes. Is a Mystical experience enough to confirm God's will in our life. Look at verse 1 and 2. We see a crucial decision Jacob makes. Though he's packed up stuff and is using Pharaoh's wagons, he travels to Beersheba where he's going to make some sacrifices. Do you see that there in the text? He's traveling to Beersheba. Would you say Beersheba? 1, 2, 3, Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is really important to them. And, and grace on you if you forgot to brush up on your Beersheba history during breakfast this morning. Here it is. Beersheba was to Abraham and Isaac what a special little church might be if your grandpa and your dad lived in the same little town their whole lives and, and they'd move but they always came back and, and this was the church where they got baptized and this is the church where they got married and this is the church where they sought the face of the Lord and this is the church where they sensed God's presence was giving them insight on how they ought to live. Where they heard the word of the Lord. If, if your dad and your grandpa were walking with God and they had that special 
church home in a little town somewhere. That would have been what Beersheba is to Jacob. He'd met God there previously in his life. And Isaac and Abraham, Beersheba was a crucial place. And so this is where Jacob goes with all of his stuff. And he gets to Beersheba. And in this spiritual place, a very mystical and spiritual moment happens to Jacob where God says, Jacob, Jacob. And his response is, here I am. But let me stop right here. Not because the text demands it, for I grant we're in the middle of a paragraph. But I, I pause here to offer a, to draw a point, a, a pastoral concern that I have for some of us at Mill Creek or some of us that are in this tribe. Here's a pastoral concern that this section brings up. I think there is a temptation in our modern culture to elevate spiritual and mystical experiences through the roof and put us in a position where we think, yeah, the Bible's okay, but what I really need is a mystical and spiritual experience to tell me what God's will is in my life. And so, so we come to these forks in the road and we find ourselves going, yeah, yeah, God, the, the Bible's fine, but what I really need from you is for you to speak audibly to me. And our temptation can be to read this kind of a passage and to go, well, what gives? You talk to Jacob. Can't you come down and talk to me too? What you got to keep in mind, though, is in Jacob's whole life, he's only heard from God a handful of times. Oh, and by the way, those handful of times, most of them are about where, where to live and are including the promised land and how crucial that is. Perhaps you want to disagree with me, but I think there's a tendency in contemporary Christian culture to elevate personal, mystical, spiritual experiences and then to all by myself decide and interpret what they mean and then to come to some conclusion and then just tell people, God told me to do it. God told me to do it. And I think there's those who may have some of this experience who leave the rest of us normal people who don't have that sort of experience thinking, I guess I'm not that spiritual. <laughs> I, guess God, I guess God's not that concerned with me. I guess I'm not a real good Christian because he doesn't do that for me. And, and here's what I want to say. My pastor's heart to you. You don't need a mystical experience to hear the word of the Lord. And if you've been wondering, what's wrong with me? I don't get that. Then I just want to turn the, the heat off. You don't need that to hear the word of the Lord. Now then, in case there's a couple of you who are like, well, I have those things. How dare you? I, let me just grant, I, of course it's possible. Of course those experiences for you might be legit. I mean, maybe tonight the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, Frank, Frank, and you're like, here I am, Lord. <laughs> and whatever God says to do, if it's him talking, I want you to obey him. It's got to align with his written word. But I grant those things are possible. And in such a moment, it may lead you to go, okay, I now need to prayerfully consider a big decision in my life. Of course, all of that is possible. But just like the other factors that we've walked through, it's not enough, at least for Jacob, 
All of those factors aren't enough for Jacob to decide, for sure, I have to move to Egypt. He is not making a decision to move to Egypt only because of what he stands to gain materially. He's not making a decision to move to Egypt only because there's a famine or because he could say, well, Grandpa and Dad did it, so maybe it's okay for me. When it comes to God's will for his life, Jacob is not merely considering, well, which of these decisions that I make is going to fulfill some deep desire I have in my heart? All of those may lead him to his knees, including this mystical spiritual experience, but none of them in and of themselves are enough for Jacob to say, boom, I know what God wants and I'm going to move forward. None of those are sufficient. But if Jacob provides us an example to follow here, what does Jacob anchor in when trying to make a decision if he should move or not? And for us today, pastor, how do we know? How do we know whether or not God's trying to get us in a particular place? Well, yes, I'm glad you're asking that question. Let's move to the answer. Drum roll, please. We discern God's will with God's words. That's how we discern God's will. You're writing notes. Take this down. If you've got a little handout, it should be right there. Circle it. Put some explanation points by it. We discern God's will with God's word. Look there in the text, verse 3. Notice God's word to Jacob. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Here is where Jacob fully and finally anchors his decision on, should I move, should I not move? Should I move, should I not move? God's saying, I'm in this, Jacob, and I want you to do this. This is going to be your last move, Jacob. He's about 130 years old. Hey, Jacob, this is the last move for you. You're going to die. Joseph's going to be there. He's going to close your eyes. But I am with you, and I'm going to bring you out of that place one day. And, and what's so cool to me about Jacob in this section is having heard the word of the Lord, Jacob proceeds with full confidence to move to Egypt. Now that he's got it down, he goes, boom, I am ready. I have confidence. Look at verses 5 to 7. He's taking all his stuff, all his possessions, all of his livestock. The big point is God's people are leaving God's place. And they are moving to a foreign land in Egypt. And what I want us to see from this text then, and this is the most crucial part when Jacob's in Beersheba. What I want us to understand is Jacob didn't necessarily ignore all of those other factors. Man, I could make a lot of money in this move. Man, there's a famine. It'd probably be safer to have my family in Egypt. Man, I have this deep desire that I'd like to be in Egypt. He, he didn't ignore all of those factors, but they were insufficient of them, in and of themselves. He anchored in the word of the Lord. And, and I'm convinced this is the reason he felt free to move because undoubtedly in Jacob's life at this point, had God said at Beersheba, no, you are not to go. I'm convinced Jacob would say, okay. Maybe he still catches a camel down there just to hug Joseph's neck, but he's not going to move the family down there. I'm convinced for Jacob that he would stay in the promised land despite whatever famine or future disasters happens. For Jacob then, having clarified God's will, these next verses seem long, but they're actually just telling who's in the family tree. If you're new to Genesis with us, family trees are a really big deal in Genesis. 
it helps us trace who's in the promise tree and who's in the tree of the serpent. And you can see in this family tree, they've organized all of the offspring of Jacob into the four wives. You have Leah's kids. You've got Leah's handmaiden, Zilpah. You've got Rachel's kids. And then you've got Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah. Bringing us to verse 27, the end of our text, in which we read, All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. There's 70. And I confess, when I finished my study of this, I thought, Okay, 70, that's a, that's a great number. Moving on. But actually, this is the second time 70 comes up in Genesis. And when Moses does something like this, our original author, he's trying to get our attention. In Genesis 10, Moses mentions 70 different nations that are connected to Noah's three sons. I won't nerd out on this too long, but here's the idea. For anybody wondering, hey, where are the Philistines from? Are they from the good son of Noah or the bad son of Noah? Genesis 10 tells you. For anybody wondering, how about the Canaanites? Or even the Egyptians? They're there in Genesis 10. And in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations that talks about that are not the people of God. And the reason then, I think he puts 70 here. The reason that number is so important is because Moses wants us to know that even though it started with just one guy named Abraham, and even though he only had one son named Isaac, and even though Isaac only had one son named Jacob, we're now at the part of the story where we're beginning to see God's promises to Abraham that you're going to have offspring that are more numerous than sand on the seashore. God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, you'll be able to count your kids as quick as you can count the stars in the sky. Now, there's going to have to be some more being fruitful and multiplying for the people of Israel, but they've gone from 1 to 70. God is slowly but surely keeping his promise to them. But having now walked through our text, I want us to consider, in view of Jacob primarily focusing on God's word to him and making a decision, for us, how might we discern God's will? Because if you're tracking with me and we've been following this, we get to this place where you might be thinking, okay, man, I get it. I see in the text how that worked for Jacob, but what does it look like for us today? Final question of the sermon. What should we be considering when discerning the will of God? What should we be discerning when concerning the will of God? So, so if you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, do I go to college? Do I go do something else? Do I get married? Do I have kids? Do I take this new job? Do I move cities? How do we discern the will of God? I hope you'll lean in here. Here are some considerations. First, first, I want you to understand that if you're in this fork in the road and you're deciding, okay, I'm going to go this direction, and then fast forward a few years, and it ends up that that decision you made has created some very difficult circumstances for you, it doesn't necessarily mean you made the wrong decision. Here's what I mean. For the original readers of this section of scripture, they would have been all of those Israelites who were just released from slavery. Moses came down. They walked all the Israelites out of Egypt. There's all of those plagues. They walked through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness waiting on going into the promised land. And they have been enslaved under an evil Pharaoh, different one than this one. They just came out of slavery. And if they were reading this section, they might have thought to themselves, what a dumb decision Jacob made to leave the promised land and move us to Egypt. Who does he think he is? Famine, shmammon, 
you are to keep us in the promised land, Jacob, but you took us to Egypt, and then they put us under forced labor. 400 years we've been suffering because of Jacob's silly decision. What I think is entirely possible, in fact, I think probable, is lots of those Israelites thought Jacob made the wrong decision. Maybe he did just move to Egypt because he wanted to increase his 401k. Maybe he did move to Egypt because, well, dad and grandpa did. Maybe he did for all these wrong reasons. But what we see in the text is God told him to go. And if God tells you to go, well, what else are you going to do? If you're sitting at a fork in the road and your sense is God's leading me this way, there can be a tendency for us to think, but if it gets really hard and uncomfortable, well, then that must not be God's will. Because God wants us to be comfortable. I mean, that's in the Bible somewhere. Now, you might be in a fork in the road and think, if I go here, I will suffer. Well, that must be God's will too. Well, that's just as dumb as the first thing. I'm not about a theology of suffering. We don't suffer and think that's more holy. But, but what I want us to see is this first principle. Just because a decision makes life hard doesn't mean we made the wrong decision. And so as you're thinking about this, you might have to do some consideration. In fact, let me just try to make this concrete real quick. There may be a few of you who are thinking to yourself, God may be leading me to overseas missions. And I don't know how the Spirit's pushing this on your heart, but in your heart of hearts, if you were honest before the Lord, you're going, I think I'm supposed to go to overseas missions. But the first thing that comes into your mind is this, but that's so hard. Well, here's what I'm telling you. It may be hard, and it still may be God's will for your life. In fact, I'm sure it's going to be hard. I, I'm confident that if you decide to go be a missionary in some unreached people group where, where they don't have anybody on their corner who's talking about Jesus, there aren't churches on every corner that can tell you the gospel. Uh, my guess is it undoubtedly will be hard, and yet it might be God's will for your life. And so don't you take that option off the table just because you're thinking, but it might be hard. The Spirit is calling you to become a missionary. Don't you flush that sense just because there's going to be pain in the offering. That's first consideration. Move to the second. Just because a decision we make leads to an easier life, it doesn't necessarily mean that's God's will either. I see this as the flip of what we just talked about. When you're having a difficult time making a decision, should I do this or should I do that? Again, our tendency, I think, as comfortable Johnson County folks is to go, well, which one's going to make me more comfortable? Which one of these makes my life really easy? And what I want you to know is just because you're making a decision and it makes it feel easier doesn't necessarily mean that's God's will for your life either. That's perhaps what Abraham was thinking in Genesis 12 when he moved to Egypt during a famine. That made Abraham's life real easy. And yet, now he's got a wife that he's calling his sister. And now she's living with another dude, the Pharaoh. And she's the whole promise of God and the family tree might get corrupted by Abraham just doing what's easy. So just because something's easy doesn't mean it's God's will either. Third, just because God called you someplace previously doesn't mean God has called you there forever. Every week I practice this sermon with a group of people, and then they give me some feedback to tell me that part was awful, that part was good. And uh, you may think, well, they haven't told you enough about what's awful. 
Well, you can join our team if you want and give us some feedback moving, moving forward. But, but this is one of the pieces that that team suggested to me. I think it's so right. God called Jacob to live in the promised land for a finite amount of time. And then God clearly called Jacob to move to Egypt. That's explicit in the text. And the parallel principle for us is that God very well may call you to a place. And you may know in your heart of heart, I am to be there right now. And yet, God may not keep you there forever. Just because God moves you to a place today doesn't mean you're going to be there for the rest of your life. God may have a different purpose for you in a different season of your life. Here's how I could make this one concrete. There's some of you, when you're thinking about a church, that you may go, dude, God has called us to Mill Creek. I just know God has called us to Mill Creek. And I'm glad God's called you to Mill Creek. And I'm, I'm, we're thrilled that you're here. And yet, we're getting ready to church plant in another year, and the Lord will be leading you to go. And as you're trying to think through, should I go, should I stay, should I go, should I stay? You may be thinking, but pastor, I know I was supposed to be at Mill Creek. I know I've been at Mill Creek for the last year or decade or however long. And, and what we see is, you very well may. That, that could be true. And yet, it doesn't mean that you're going to be here for the next 25 just because God called you somewhere at some time doesn't mean you're going to be there forever. I'm not pretending to know what God is going to want you to do. I just want to clarify a consideration from our text. God can call us to a place for some time and then move us. For those of you who don't call this your church home, perhaps this is God telling you to move to Kansas City and make this your church home I got out-of-town family here, so that was just a little side plug. At my... Fourth consideration, and here's the most important consideration of them all, the sermon in a sentence. Anchor in God's will, anchor in God's word to determine God's will. Anchor in God's word to determine God's will. We can cook all day on all the extenuating factors. Will this be good for my 401k? Will this hurt my 401k? Will I suffer if I say yes to overseas missions? Will it be beautiful? Should I go on the church plan? You can do that all day long. You can make pros and cons lists all day long. But at the end of the day, you need to anchor in God's word to determine his will. Like Jacob who said, I am not moving to Egypt till I go to Beersheba and hear the word of the Lord. May we not make any decision that is significant without looking in God's word and saying, what does it say? My guess is that feels quite theoretical. So let me make it concrete again. We know from God's word that we are to give God glory. That's why any church that has a high view of God's word, somewhere in their mission statement says, we're doing this for the glory of God. Bazillion churches out there in their mission statement talk about God's glory, God's word. And that's because it's just so clear. So... Oh, look, it's in our mission statement too. Yeah, we're just like everybody else that has a high view of God's word. We all do the same thing. We're doing this for God's glory. That's a way you can anchor in God's word. So if you have a decision in front of you, should I do this or should I do that? I'm at the fork in the road, pastor. One way to make this concrete would be to ask this question. Hey, God, if I do this, does that bring you more glory? Or, if, or does that bring you more glory? And, and you try to 
best you know, just work it out in your head. Okay, God, what would you want me to do? I have these two options. They both seem good. Well, which do you think brings God more glory? And if you're like, well, that's an easy answer. Well, then that's an easy answer. Or a different way to anchor in God's word would be to be clear on what our mission is as Christians. If, if you're a Christian here, this has been settled. 2,000 years people have settled this. The mission of a Christian is to make disciples. That's why there's a bazillion churches all over the world who all have in their mission statement, make disciples. Oh, look, it's in ours too. Go figure. It's because whoever has a high view of the word sees that as their mission. It's actually really simple. So if you're in front of a decision, should I move, should I not move? Well, one of the questions to anchor in God's word would be this. Well, which one allows you to make more disciples? Now, maybe you're going, uh, I don't know. They're both kind of equal. Okay, well, maybe that wasn't the most helpful question. But, but if you are asking the question, you're like, well, I know which one helps make more disciples. Well, anchor in God's word and go do that. Uh, last one. I'm trying to make this concrete for you. How do I anchor in God's word? We know that, we know that Christ loves the lost. Luke 19.10. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So if you have a decision, should I move neighborhoods or not move neighborhoods? Here's a question for you. Which one do you think gives you an opportunity to share Jesus more? Should I go with the church plan or don't go with the church plan? Which one makes you have a better opportunity to share Jesus? Do I take the new job? Do I not take the new job? What, do you have an evangelism chance that's, that's really strong in one or the other? Anchor in God's word and go in that direction. I don't pretend to think these are the only ways to anchor in God's word, but I'm just trying to give you some examples of how clear God's word can be and how it can help us make a decision. Fifth consideration, respond with prayer. If you're struggling to know what to do, you've got a tough decision in front of you, pray from Exodus 33, 14, and 15. God, I'll go anywhere and do anything if you will go with me. Lead me wherever you want. That's a prayer adapted from Exodus 33, 14, and 15. And if between you and God, you're on your knees and you're able to say that, I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything. As long as you go with me, I'll do it. Amen. You're in good shape if you can make that your prayer. Sixth consideration, here's from my heart. From my heart, find a good friend who knows God's word and will pray for you. And if you're making a tough decision, Seek a good friend who doesn't have a dog in the fight, you know. If you're thinking about, if you're thinking about changing jobs, you don't want to have your best Christian friend who's at the job you're thinking about leaving, giving you advice. They've got a dog in the fight. <laughs> Find a good friend. If you're here and you're like, Pastor, I don't have a good friend. Jump into one of our life groups. Volunteer to serve. Those are great ways to begin friendship at a church like ours. Find a friend who's going to help you discern God's will. Final consideration for anyone here overwhelmed. Pastor, I don't know, this one or that. Do I do it? Do I not do it? I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged because it can feel when you're in the front of a really tough decision that you're all by yourself. Take heart. You're not the only one that's all by yourself. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God. He is interceding for us. If you're in Christ, he is praying for you, Romans 8, 34 tells us. And it's not just Jesus who's praying for you. You want to know who else is praying for you? Holy Spirit. Some of you knew that. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit 
himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So you're thinking, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I'm all alone. Nope, Jesus is there, he's praying for you, and the Holy Spirit's praying for you as well. And just in case you're really worried, but I made the wrong decision, good news for you. Be encouraged. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's Romans 8.34. Some brief encouragement from Romans 8. Be encouraged. Turns out that making a wrong decision and discerning God's will falls under the umbrella of all things, that God can still work for your good. With these in light, we consider Christ who came seeking to discern God's will. And what he did is the best example for us. He anchored in God's mission for him. Christ came, saw his purpose from God. Christ anchored in this desire to see the lost come to saving faith. And what we see from Christ then is the perfect example of one who discerned God's will and was willing to submit to God's will with his life. In our text, we saw Jacob offer a sacrifice at Beersheba. When we think of Christ, Jesus offered a sacrifice, but it was his very life. But because of the cross, because of Christ, friend, we are now invited to be part of God's people. There were 70 who went down to Egypt and could claim they're in Egypt in a foreign land, we are going to find a chosen son of Jacob who was put in the pit, resurrected as it were, and is now going to provide for us through this terrible season of our life and give us a chance to make it back to the promised land. So it is for us. We have a savior, a chosen son of Jacob who was dead who has come back to life and is protecting us as we live in a foreign country. No, we're not living in Egypt right now. We're in the United States of America, Pastor. Didn't you know that? Oh, yes, but this is not our eternal home. We are awaiting one day to return to God's place, to live under God's rule where we can be God's people. And as we wait on that, we have a bunch of decisions we have to make. Anchor in God's word to be able to make those decisions so that one day in eternity, when we're in God's place, we're going to be able to say, thank you, Lord, you got me safely home. Thank you that Christ prayed for me. Thank you that the Spirit prayed for me. And someday we get to live in this new land, and we're not going to have to wonder, what should I do? How sweet will it be to be able to look at God and say, hey, God, do you want me to move? And God will say in the new heavens and new earth, yeah, or no. And you say, all right, thanks a lot, because <laughs> he's going to be there with us. As we await that day, let's thank him for the salvation and provision we have in his chosen son, Christ. Pray with me, please. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.